Hello and welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast and welcome back to another episode of Broken Oars Summer Shorts. Yes, it's time to get away from rowing and the glorious art of smacking a boat backwards down a river and get back to that stuff that you prefer. That's right, poets and poetry. The person that we're going to talk about today has an extraordinarily complicated reputation, legacy, and history. But I think it's important that we talk about him. It is, of course, Rudyard Kipling. Now, it is intensely problematic to talk about Rudyard Kipling because he is a racist and he is an imperialist, but he is also, after Shakespeare, probably the greatest writer that England or the English language has yet produced. And I know that that is a very, very bold claim. There is an argument going round at the moment about whether or not we can separate the art from the artist when we know that the artist was an unconscionable shit. That's a complex question, speaking personally. I was brought up, for example, on the music of John Martin because my dad was of that age in the 60s and 70s when listening to John Martin was what cool people did. And John Martin writes songs of transcendent spiritual beauty about love and belonging and family and all of those things. And I grew up on those tunes and I thought they were gorgeous. And it turns out that John Martin was an alcoholic. He was domestically abusive towards his wife, Beverly. He was abusive towards his children and he was abusive and malignant towards a lot of other people that crossed his path. And the reality is that I no longer listen to John Martin because even though the songs may still be beautiful, they are not worth the cost that it took to produce them, the human cost that it took to produce them. And I feel the same way about other musical artists. So, for example, David Bowie. David Bowie has some fantastic songs in his catalogue. Let's Dance, which is basically Nile Rodgers' cheek meeting Stevie Ray Vaughan's Texas Blues sting and creating a timeless slice of the 80s. It is literally a slice of the 80s. is a wonderful song, but it turns out that David Bowie liked to sleep with underage girls and he was an Englishman in the latter half of the 20th century so he was fully aware that sleeping with underage girls is not on and rock and roll doesn't give you a pass to do that it doesn't give you a pass to be above the law or to break the law and I feel the same about Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin I grew up on Led Zeppelin 4. It's one of my all-time favourite albums, but I can't listen to it because the art took a human cost to produce that is too much. The Way You Make Me Feel by Michael Jackson has a groove that will make even people with Zimmer frames dance. But it would appear that Michael Jackson was a paedophile and therefore the same rules apply. When it comes to talking about Rudyard Kipling, 
It's slightly more problematic, however, because the one thing that Britain doesn't do very well is address its history. We do a lot of other things very well. We row very well, for example, as we know on this podcast. But when it comes to history, those of you who have children or those of you who've been through the school system in the UK will know that we talk about things like Henry VIII and how he was a misogynist who killed women. And we talk about things like the Reformation and how it created the Church of England and the diarchy of state and church that still exists to this day. You might touch upon Oliver Cromwell or the Restoration. Then you leap forward, you leap forward 200, 300 years to the causes of the First World War and the First World War. And that will tie in with some talk about war poets in your English literature class. And then we might talk about the rise of fascism and totalitarian regimes in the 1920s and 1930s. And how that led to the Second World War and what happened there. And then there's a big gap between that and the present day. But there's an even bigger gap between the end of the Tudor period and the beginning of the 20th century and the First World War of about 300 to 350 years. And in that period, Britain created, conquered, carved out the largest empire that the world has ever seen. And we don't really address it. Its legacy is everywhere. And I think we should talk about Rudyard Kipling in the context of empire. And I think we should establish why he is one of the most significant writers, I feel second only to Shakespeare, in the language, and why we should engage with him. I do not believe that pulling a statue down helps us to understand our history. It would be far more beneficial in the case of Coulson's statue, for example, to leave the statue up, but put a plaque next to it, explaining who he was and what he did and perhaps pointing out that when the idea of a statue to Coulson was first floated, the public back in the 1890s didn't want anything to do with it, and a private donor had to pay for it. Rather than pull down statues of Rhodes, and talk about running down the Rhodes Scholarship, we should leave the statues of Rhodes up, and put a plaque saying who Rhodes was, and what he did. And we should maybe look at the Rhodes Scholarship, not in terms of running it down, but making it contingent upon doing something with it that will benefit mankind, given that its origins were in something that was so destructive to many in mankind's communities and geographies. There is a current vogue in Britain for denying history and rewriting history. Now, history is always revised. The preconceptions of one age will be revised and reviewed by a succeeding age. But overwriting or denying history is not good for anyone. It does not help us to overcome our collective historical and cultural amnesia about our past. Pulling a statue down does no good in explaining why the statue was there in the first place. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anyone's help in any way. I know I do that joke a lot on this podcast, but I just like singing Beatles songs. But when I was younger, some of the American states decided to ban um, the adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn because it 
had the N-word in it. And recently we have seen that Roald Dahl's books are to be overwritten because the language in it does not suit current sensibilities. Once you are on the path of banning books or rewriting books to occlude or remove their historical antecedents and their cultural historical context and what they say about the, cult the cultural historical context in which they were written, even if you are doing it for the right reasons, you are on the path to where books are burned and midnight rallies where books are burned. The intent does not matter. It would be far better for those American states to actually teach in its entirety the adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn so that people, under, so that people understand the history of the country. It would be far better, in case of the works of Roald Dahl, to put a note at the front explaining who Roald Dahl was, when he lived, and why some of the language in the books might be considered as offensive in the modern context. And then readers can make up their own mind, and readers can decide to engage with the text or not, and readers can decide to engage with the personality, in Roald Dahl's case, of the author, because he wasn't a particularly nice man, even if he did write fantastic books for children. And it's in this spirit that I think that we should approach Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling's genius was this, and it's very, very simple. It's so simple that you might think, well, that doesn't seem like very much. But if you look at it in terms of the cultural historical context, it is really important. Kipling's genius was that he was the first writer to write about people and their professions. Now, you're going to go, no, look, there are, there are bakers in Dickens, there are bankers in Trollope, there are Highland clansmen in Sir Walter Scott, there are kings and queens in this, and there are society ladies and gentlemen in Henry James. He didn't write, he wasn't the first to do it, no. Let me explain. He was the first writer to write about people and what they did and their lives. Not literary characters, not caricatures needed for the advancement of the plot, but the lives of real men and women working within the empire. Yes, the E word, the empire, that thing that Britain refuses to confront when it talks about its history. Now, as well as writing about real people, he also wrote about what they did. He was the first writer to write about the world of work. And I can see you going, oh no, but there, there are lawyers in Jarndyce and Jarndyce and Bleak House and there, there, are, there are fishermen and sailors in David Copperfield and there... No. Let me explain again. Literature, pre-Kipling, wrote about ideas. It wrote in, by ideas I mean it might be something like Pilgrim's Progress, which was the, was exploring the idea of spiritual, how you attain spiritual salvation. It wrote in terms of plot and genre, romance fiction, goodies and baddies, good triumphing over evil, um, those kind of things. The observations that the writers made, particularly in genres like romance fiction, were not necessarily reflective of the world that they were in, as we talked about with Dickens last time. They were made to fit a particular perspective 
or to fit the author's worldview or to fit the author's imaginary worldview. What Kipling did was he wrote about the world and he wrote about the world of work. He was a writer in the midst of the technological revolution, the race to modernity that was the Victorian period. He was the writer and the artist who most instinctively and deeply felt and understood the fundamental connection between technology, technological advancement, and imperial strength and power. Because this was the age of technological advancement. It is the vital factor in Britain's imperial story. We didn't acquire an empire because we were more morally upright, because we were more virtuous, because we were more civilised, which were all ideas that were floated at the time and which still occasionally recur to this day. We acquired an empire because we had better guns and bombs and munitions and ships and armies and supply chains and communications chains and logistical planning. For example, the British possession of the telegraph played a vital role in defeating the uprisings in the Indian Mutiny or the First War of Indian Independence in 1857 in India. At the same time that this was happening, Speak and Burton was setting out to discover the sources of the Nile, Livingston was heading off to explore the Zambezi. Shallow draft steamers, which Britain developed, were an essential part of this enterprise. Having begun unlocking Africa in his entitled and civilised white person way, Livingston could then produce a best-selling book about it, which would help him to publicise both his adventures and also himself. This was the age of self-promotion. It was steam printing that allowed him to roll off 70,000 copies of missionary travels and researches in South Africa. Before the invention of steam printing, 10,000 books sold would have been seen as a prodigy. Travel speeds, linking the empire, getting from one place to the other, thanks to railroads and steamships, had been significantly reduced. We all know that Jules Verne sent Phileas Fogg, who is fictional, around the world in 80 days. In 1889-1890, the American journalist Elizabeth Cochran, Nellie Bly, accomplished the round trip in a little over 72. This was the era when the world was divided into 24 time zones, roughly one hour apart, because it was now technologically possible to put Shakespeare's girdle around the earth. Steel had replaced iron as the re preferred material for boiler and hull construction, which meant that purpose-built ships, powered by steam, could bring frozen meat or petroleum or other goods across the ocean, which we will come back to when we talk about Kipling's poetry. The refinement and development of petroleum fueled the newly developed twin-cylinder engine developed by Daimler of Wuttenberg. In 1885, he had devised the surface carburetor, and while he was designing his high-speed vertical engine, Carl Benz, later of Mercedes-Benz fame, but then from just from Mannheim, was developing his first motor vehicle. Joseph Swan, familiar since the late 1840s with the filament lamp and arc lamps, had developed his electric glow lamp, which was the first carbon filament incandescent light bulb in December 1878. He lit the house, and all Geordies and Northumbrians will know this, of Sir William Armstrong, which was the first electrified house in the UK, if not the world. 
the House of Commons was lit with incandescent electrical light by 1881. Peterhouse Cambridge was the first educational institution to follow suit. At the same time as these developments were changing the world and changing the way that the world communicated, wireless telegraph was being developed by Heinrich Hertz. So Oliver Lodge pioneered the use of the induction coil as a means of tuning an electric resonator. He perfected this system by 1897 and the commercial possibilities of this were instantly exploited by Marconi um, and lead on to the present digital age that we currently have. Before that, Alexander Graham Bell, basing his experiments on the work of the German physicist Helmholtz, had pioneered the telephone and the first telephone exchange was established in London in 1879. The Home Insurance Company in Chicago in 1883 had commissioned Jenny to build them a 10-storey office block, which is now since demolished, which would be fireproof and let in as much light as possible. To do this, the lower storeys were constructed with wrought iron beams and girders. Wrought iron was also used by Eiffel when he designed the 985-foot Eiffel Tower for the Paris Exhibition of 1889, its piers embedded in huge pits of concrete 50 feet deep. We take these innovations for granted now. We're used to skyscrapers that literally scrape the sky. But to put this in context, if you've ever been in a British city like Manchester, for example, and let's say you get off at Piccadilly train station and you take along Whitworth Street or Portland Street towards Oxford Road, the height of the buildings there is very, very strictly delimited by the building materials. The red bricks of Manchester can only go a maximum of four to five storeys high before the weight of the building above starts to crush the bricks at the bottom. This is a human scale. When you are walking along it, it is still human sized. It is still human scale. You can imagine people working in and around it. You can equate it back to your family home or to another building that you know from your own hometown. But suddenly, once you start having steel and iron girders being put into place and these dizzying, dizzying buildings springing up in the centre of your city, in the centre of your town, you are in a whole new world. The heights and scale of modern building was being changed by the building materials, but also the invention and refinement of the mechanical elevator. What you have then is a world that is changing in size and scale before your very eyes. And what you also have is that being reflected in your apprehension of the world, because what you also have is a world that was of locality, of being local, of local dialect, local knowledge, local customs, local ideas, being replaced by another world entirely. The idea of the world as global and being linked together by petroleum-fueled engines, being built upon in steel-girded buildings and designs, being telephonically and telegraphically connected, being electrically lit. There is a famous quotation which says, it is useless to rail against capitalism. Capitalism did not create our world. The machine did, which originates at this time. A consequence of the technological development sections is that you also have an arms race where the world becomes divided into the haves and the have-nots. Those who have the technology and the suit and the weaponry and the munitions and the logistics and the supply chains and those who do not. Those who have those things and who can use them to invade, to intervene, to conquer, 
to colonize and those who do not and therefore cannot resist it. This is where empire is built and born. It isn't just because the technology was there. It isn't just because the politicians wanted it to happen. It is also because the story of technological expansion is also the story of imperial expansion. Given the possibility of steamships and railways being able to cover vast distances relatively quickly compared to earlier, given that you could now communicate between London and Bombay, now Mumbai, where once you would have to send letters via a packet ship or a packet steamer, and you can now communicate with them in minutes, given that the development of munitions lead to the development of the machine gun, you create a situation where the people who invent these things feel compelled to use it. Cultures with no technology cannot resist the incursions, the invasions, the conquest, the interventions of those who have Maxim guns, those who have access to telegrams, those who have railways, those who have steel-framed steamships. So another way of looking at this would be to say that the technologically advanced culture was the dominant culture at that point because it had the weaponry and the technological resources to make it so. The Victorians construed this as meaning that they were superior. That's not the right way of looking at it. They were dominant because they were the dominant technological power. And if you want to know where that leads, well, it's worth noting that in 1879, Alfred Noble invented blasting gelatin, which is 92% nitroglycerin gelatinized with 8% of collodion cotton. The difficulties in manufacturing this were initially great, but by 1884, with the use of soluble nitrocotton, meant that large-scale production could begin. And if you take the idea that having technology means that you are compelled to use it, you can see this as another step on the road to where we currently exist as a human race, where we have all of this technology, but we have also the complete capacity to obliterate ourselves altogether. Kipling understood with incisive intelligence the connection between technology and imperial strength. Where other writers that we've looked at, like Houseman and Dickens, and the other late Victorians and the early Edwardians looked backwards and went, what have we lost, what have we lost? And they looked back to a pre-lapsarian, a pre-imperial, a pre-technological expansion pastoral ideal, the idea that England was in the land, England is in the countryside, in the green fields, in the fields of grain and the country lanes, Kipling looked at what was in front of him and celebrated that and he was one of the first writers to do so. Where other writers looked back and celebrated some kind of pantheistic vision of the past, of the land and the people being one, Kipling looked at the technology and celebrated that. If you look at something like MacAndrew's hymn, he puts in the mouth of an old Scotch ship's engineer the idea that the technological advancements that he sees are somehow divinely preordained or linked to the idea of a greater, wider, bigger, divine order. From couple of flange to spindle guide, I see thy hand, O God, 
predestination in the stride of yon connecting rod. Kipling's God wasn't Pan, it wasn't Puck, it wasn't Pan in the forest glade or Puck dancing around by the stream, it was in what man had built and what man had accomplished in steel and iron and oil and fire. His Puckish sprite is not some figure from a fairy tale, it is something entirely different. In The King, Kipling sees the idea of the boy God, the pantheistic dream of people like Kenneth Graham when he talks about the ideas of Pan in The Wind and the Willows, in the return to the pastoral that was deeply felt in the 1890s and 1880s, that we need to get back to the land, that we need to get back to rurality. In The King, Kipling actually turns that around. His boy god, who most poets would say at this point has vanished from the earth, is actually bringing up the 915 train. His hand was on the lever laid, his oil can soothed the worrying cranks. His whistle waked the snowbound grade, his foghorn cut the reeking banks. By dock and deep and mine and mill, the boy god reckless laboured still. He's not praising God in his heaven. He's not praising some prelapsarian rural ideal of what life can be. He is praising the industry and the inventiveness and the cleverness of mankind and its ability to shape and form the world around it. He's not relying on God to lay things out as they should be. He's celebrating men making the world in their image. And Kipling, at the height of his pomp, said, what do they know of England, they who only England know? We'll come back to that because it offers an important insight into the way that England viewed the empire, or Britain viewed the empire, and the colonies and the dominions. But in this context, he was acutely aware of the fact that Britain's place in the world and the empire that Britain then held was dependent upon technology and men and women working within the empire with the technology to supply Britain with a lot of the things that Britain now took for granted. Britain's place in the world, Britain's connection in the world was dependent on being connected to the world. The idea of supreme isolationism, which is a common cultural myth, which is still being peddled to this day, is just that. It's a myth. Kipling was pointed out that Britain was reliant on being connected to the world outside. It was then, it is still so today. There is a wonderful poem called Big Steamers. There is a northeastern folk group um, the Henderson Brothers or something like that, who do a wonderful vocal rendition of it. I'm not going to sing it, but I will read it. And he absolutely nails Britain's dependence on the world. Well, where are you going to, all you big steamers, with England's old coal up and down the salt seas? We are going to fetch you your bread and your butter, your beef, pork and mutton, eggs, apples and cheese. And where will you fetch it from, all you big steamers? And where shall I write you when you are away? We shall fetch it from Melbourne, Quebec and Vancouver. Address us at Hobart, Hong Kong and Bombay. But if anything happened to you, all you big steamers, and suppose you were wrecked up and down the salt sea, then you'd have no coffee or bacon for breakfast, and you'd have no muffins or toast for your tea. Then I'll pray for fine weather for all you big steamers, for little blue billows and breezes so soft, 
Oh, billows and bruises don't bother big steamers, for we're iron below and steel rigging aloft. Then I'll build a new lighthouse for all you big steamers, with plenty wise pilots to pilot you through. Oh, the channel's as bright as a ballroom already, and pilots are thicker than pilchards at loo. Then what can I do for you, all you big steamers? Oh, what can I do for your comfort and good? Send out your big warships to watch your big waters, that no one may stop us from bringing your food. For the bread that you eat and the biscuits you nibble, the sweets that you suck and the joints that you carve, they are brought to you daily by all us big steamers, and if anyone hinders our coming, you'll starve. This was written between the 1914-1918 war, the First World War, as I understand it, when Britain's reliance on the rest of the world and its connections with the rest of the world to feed itself, to clothe itself and to keep the lights on had been made painfully apparent by the war. And in that context, you can see it in terms of late imperialism and you can see it in terms of the First World War and the convoy system and the supply chains and all of those kind of things. Those historical things, you can see it in terms of historical context, but you can see it in terms of our post-Brexit British landscape where our reliance upon our European neighbours and our European allies has been painfully exposed in, in the empty shelves in our supermarkets and the shortages that we've experienced since Brexit. Kipling understood the arrogance implicit in saying we do not need anyone, we are reliant on ourselves, we, we stand alone, because he was very aware that we didn't stand alone. There is an idea which has been pushed out regularly for about the last 150, 170 years, that Britain stands in glorious isolation, that Britain does not need any contact with her European neighbours, that Britain does not need any contact with the United States because Britain stands alone. This was a sophistry then, and it's a sophistry now. Or to put it more bluntly, it's an absolute beggaring lie. Britain ruled over the largest empire that the world had ever seen. It did not stand alone against Germany in the First World War or in the Second World War. It stood alone with the backing of a quarter of the world's land surface and resources and men and everything within the colonies and dominions. The degree to which the colonies and the dominions and the dependencies and all of the various nomenclatures that Britain used to describe places that it had conquered or invaded the degree to which they contributed to the First World War and the Second World War is now, thankfully, taught in history, to a degree, in schools. It is not taught that as soon as victory was achieved in the First World War, the colony troops and the Indian troops and the Sikh troops and the Canadian troops and the Australian troops who'd done so much to win that war were hastily shipped back and played no part in the victory parade. Because to have them there would be to publicly acknowledge that the myth that we stand alone was just that. It was a myth. In the Second World War, we did not stand alone. We did not defy Hitler. We did defy Hitler with words. Churchill's speeches are still masterpieces of oratory. And Boris Johnson comes off a very, very, very poor, not even second. He's not even in the top ten by comparison. But we did not stand and fight and hold them back. The only reason that we did not end up like France was because we had 21 miles of water between us and them. 
What won the Second World War were 26 million Russian dead and American intervention. Kipling is talking about connection, the things that connect us, the things that unify us, the things that bind us. And in doing so, he touches upon ideas about race and creed and ethnicity that to modern sensibilities are deeply questionable. I don't know whether it's because he, is a, he was a Mason and therefore there's the idea of the divine architect and everything having an order and maybe that informed the way that he viewed the way that technology linked things together. But he knew that Britain didn't stand alone. And in one of his most contentious pieces, where he talks about the white man's burden, he is making a direct call to America to step up. Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. To wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new court sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Take up the white man's burden, in patience to abide, to veil the threat of terror, and check the show of pride, by open speech and simple, and a hundred times made plain, to seek another's profit, and work another's gain. Take up the white man's burden, the savage wars of peace, fill full the mouth of famine, and bid the sickness cease. And when your goal is nearest, the end for others sought, watch sloth and heathen folly, bring all your hope to naught. Take up the white man's burden, no tawdry rule of kings, but toil of surf and sweeper, the tale of common things. The ports ye shall not enter, the roads ye shall not tread. Go make with them your living, and mark with them your dead. Take up the white man's burden, and reap his old reward. The blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard. The cry of host ye humour, are slowly towards the light. Why brought ye here from bondage, our loved Egyptian knight? Take up the white man's burden, ye dare not stoop to less, nor call too loud to freedom, to cloak your weariness. But all ye cry or whisper, by all ye leave or do, the silent sullen peoples shall weigh your gods anew. Take up the white man's burden, have done with childish days, the lightly proffered laurel, the easy ungrudged praise. Come now to search your manhood through all your thankless years, called edged and with dear-bought wisdom, the judgment of your peers. Now this is an intensely difficult read in the 21st century, so let's unpick it a little bit. The poem was originally written to celebrate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. Kipling revised it in 1899, and he did so as an exhortation for the American people, Americans, to conquer and rule the Philippines. The conquest in the poem is not portrayed as a way for white people or the white race to gain individual or national wealth or power. Instead, Kipling is defining, or the speaker of the poem, is defining imperialism and colonialism in moral terms. He's putting it out there that it is a civilizing mission. These are common narratives at the time. He's talking about it as a burden that the white race must take up in order to help non-white races develop civilization. In its immediate historical context, the idea of empire imperialism as a civilizing force, which was a common and dominant cultural narrative at the time, was so influential that the argument for American intervention in the Philippines, American imperialism, let's call it what it is, was debated in Congress 
as was the poem. Uh, and the question was whether America should annex the Philippine Islands after the Spanish-American War. The phrase, the white man's burden, remains notorious, rightly so, as a racist justification for Western conquest in imperial projects. The first thing that should be said is that the history of the world, at any time, is the history of competing empires at various phases of their rise and fall. We still live in an imperial age. Kipling's period was the period of imperial colonization, when in order to control another country or to take another country's resources, you invaded it, conquered it, subdued it, left garrisons there, created trade centers, you colonized it. We now do it slightly differently in as much as we do it with finance and logistics and mobilization of resources or withholding of resources to put com other countries in debt to us or to put other countries in credit to us. At the time, possibly as a result of the influence of people like Darwin, but also because of the idea that history represents a march forward, a progression forward, what you had when you had this period of colonization were people from a particular country, in this case Britain, but it could be Belgium or France or Germany or Holland or any of the other European powers that had colonies, going to other countries and seeing other civilizations and using the idea that history is a march towards progress to judge them. So a British person going to sub-Saharan Africa in the scramble for Africa in the 1870s and 80s, or going to um, subcontinental India, does not see a rich and diverse culture that stands alone and a civilization that has developed within its own context. They see it on a comparative scale. They see it as a scale from if mankind has descended from monkeys, as Darwin says, and we have steamships and we have and we have technology and we have stiff collars and we have top hats and these people don't we must be better than them therefore we are at a higher stage of civilization and they are less civilized they are less civilized it is a comparative exercise and from that comparative exercise when coupled with a sense of christian mission you get the idea that what we need to do now then is we need to bring them to our level by civilizing. We are not going into their country to take their resources and enslave them and to enrich ourselves. We are doing it ultimately to enrich them. From that by civilizing them, we are bringing our light of civilization into their darkness, their dark primitive way of life. That's how people thought then and was absolute bollocks then too. It's absolute bollocks now, of course, but it's still the justification that we give when we go into Iraq or Afghanistan, that we're going to civilize, that we're going to bring democracy, that we're going to bring a better way of life. In couching this in terms of a moral civilizing mission, Kipling was fundamentally cleaving to a dominant cultural view that the empire was a force for good. Now, that dominant cultural view was one that was held by a lot of Britons and a lot of British people 
and it was a dominant narrative within the construction of the empire that the idea of light into darkness, um, Livingston and Stanley taking light into darkest Africa. Unfortunately, as with a lot of our cultural narratives, in every nation state, whether it's Britain or Germany or France or America, our cultural narratives tend not to be accurate. The empire was always, always fundamentally an economic proposition. The other stuff tends to get tacked on as justification for economic action and economic intervention or, or explanation for economic action or intervention. And we see it today when we invade Afghanistan and we invade Iraq and we invade we say that we're doing it in the name of freedom and justice and democracy but we're really just there for the oil and while Kipling's position in the white man's burden poem is repugnant to us today and should rightly be repugnant to us today it reflects a cultural narrative of the time Kipling was also the first writer to talk about the empire the British empire and its appeal in physical terms, in sensory terms, in tactile terms, in sexual terms. So whatever the political or economic motives of empire, and we've established that empires are always economic propositions, its existence, the British Empire's existence and its growth and the existence of the other empires within Europe at the time, expanded the world for a great many people who otherwise would not have come into contact with different races and cultures, different races and cultures completely different to their own. So if we look at um, the road to Mandalay, which was unfortunately made famous by our boorish ex-prime minister deciding to quote it in a Buddhist temple, the Burma girl who sits by the old Mulman pagoda offers delights which are not in the repertoire of the 50 housemaids dated by the common soldier narrator since his return to London. By the old Moolman pagoda looking eastward towards the sea, there's a Burma girl a-setting and I know she thinks of me. For the wind is in the palm trees and the temple bells they say, come back you British soldier, come you back to Mandalay. Come you back to Mandalay where the old flotilla lay, can't you hear their paddles chunking from the Rangoon to Mandalay? On the road to Mandalay where the flying fishes play And the dawn comes up like thunder Out of China across the bay Her petticoat was yellow and her little cap was green And her name was Supi Yarlet Just the same as Thebor's queen And I see her first a smoking a whacking white cheroot And wasting Christian kisses on an Ethan idol's foot Blum an idol made of mud What they call the great god blood Plucky lot she cared for idols when I kissed her where she stood on the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder, out of China, across the bay. When the mist was on the right fields, and the sun was dropping low, she'd get a little banjo, and she'd sing Kula Lolo, with her arm upon my shoulder, and her cheek again my cheek. You used to watch the steamers, and the hathis piling teak. Elephants are piling teak, and the sludgy sludgy queek, where the silence sung that heavy, you were half afraid to speak. On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder, out of China, across the bay. But that's all shoved behind me, long ago and far away, and there ain't no buses running from the bank to Mandalay, and I'm learning here in London what the ten-year soldier tells. If you've heard the Easter calling, you won't never read naught else. No, you won't need naught else but them spicy garlic smells, and the sunshine in the palm trees, and the tinkly temple bells. 
On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder out of China across the bay. I'm sick of wasting leather on these gritty paving stones, and the blasted English drizzle wakes the fever in my bones. Though I walk with fifty housemaids out of Chelsea to the Strand, and they talk a lot of loving, but what do they understand? Beefy face and grubby, and what do they understand? I've a neater, sweeter maiden in a cleaner, greener land. On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder, out of China, across the bay. Ship me somewhere east of Suez, where the best is like the worst, where there ain't no Ten Commandments and a man can raise a thirst. For the temple bells are calling, and it's there that I would be, by the old Moomin pagoda, looking lazy at the sea. On the road to Mandalay, where the old flotilla lay, but I sick beneath the awnings when we went to Mandalay. On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishes play, and the dawn comes up like thunder, out of China, across the bay. Now there's a comment to be made about the difficulties of reintegration into English life when migrants from England or colonizers came back. The mother country was not particularly welcoming. They didn't particularly like it. Books have been written by them about, and books have been written about this phenomenon. In Kipling's case, he was peculiarly alive to it for the simple reason that he was an Anglo-Indian. Now, we tend to think of that as meaning someone who has an Indian father and a British mother or a British father and an Indian mother. But in Kipling's time, it meant someone who was born in India. Britain still is fundamentally class-bound. It is class-bound from top to bottom. We are desperate to preserve our hierarchies and our place in the station. We stamp on the fingers of those below us while desperately trying to scramble up to the next level. Back in Kipling's time, it was significantly worse. It's a very, very odd thing because, because of the rights of Rees Soleil, if you were born in the empire, you were a British citizen. And as the Windrush generation found out, that didn't re really mean very much when they actually traveled back to England and to Britain. But back then, it was supposed to mean that everyone was equal, but Britain being what it was, it wasn't the case. As Curzon said about India, it is a first-rate place for second-rate people. To be born Anglo-Indian and to be nominally British was to be of a lower class than a British person who'd actually been born in Britain. And Kipling was very, very aware of this distinction. Plain Tales from the Hills made him a literary sensation overnight, but there were those in Britain who rather wished that he hadn't written about actually what happened in the colonies, in the dominions, in the conquests, quite as explicitly as he had, because he was exposing the realities and the myths of the empire. The reality, the myths were that the empire was glorious and wonderful and a noble force for good in the world, and the realities of it were horrible and gritty and grimy and not particularly nice. We cannot endorse the views of the white man's burden with its picture of your new court sullen peoples, half devil and half child, but it would be someone who was extraordinarily obtuse and determined not to see that Kipling was an extraordinary, if controversial, an incomparable, if in controversial, interpreter of how empire was experienced 
and it would take someone who was extraordinarily obtuse and determined not to see that he had an extraordinary narrative gift, not just in his poetry, but in his short stories and in his range as a writer. He is probably Britain's greatest short story writer, the greatest practitioner of dialect and idiolect, and it would be an act of intellectual priggishness or intellectual snobbery who does not see merit in both his enormous output of verse and his enormous output of stories and his enormous output full stop. When he first emerged, he was seen less as an imperialist, as an exotic, because his background was Anglo-India. He was born in India. The, more, the stories in Plain Tales from the Hills showed a world that defenders of the Raj wanted concealed. Because if you go to the short stories and you, you read them this weekend or you settle down with a glass of wine or a beer or a cup of coffee and you dip into Plain Tales from the Hills, British imperialists do not come out of it very well. In story after story, in incomparable vignette after incomparable vignette, the absolute silliness and triviality of the English in the hill stations, English society more specifically in the hill stations, the casual adulteries, the casual flirtations, the continual allure, imaginative and sexual of India herself. And then you go to something like Soldiers 3 straight after and you see the, the utter desperation of the working classes who are there as soldiers in comparison there is, if you read these stories, if you come to them as a new storyteller and you come to them without the baggage that Kipling has accreted in the last 70 years, they are intensely colourful, intensely rich, intensely flavourful time capsules and incredibly insightful. They are showing us the reality of the British in India and the reality of the empire that it's full of silly people and self-important people and the noble ideas and virtues that are attached to the empire are attached to it after the fact. So let's look at a short story called Beyond the Pale. Um, it's not a poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll praise it for you. An Englishman called Trejago wanders down a dark, narrow gully in the city, which we think is Lahore. He peers through a grating to see who is the owner of the, the laugh, the pretty little laugh that he can hear coming from the darkened room behind it. It is Bissessa, a 15-year-old widow, and he woos her by singing the love song of Hardial in her own language. In the daytime, Trajago drove through his routine of office work, or put on his calling clothes and called on the ladies of the station, wondering how long they would know him if they knew of poor little Bissessa. At night, when all the city was still, came the walk under the evil-smelling Bukra, the patrol through Jitha Meggi's busty, and the quick turn into Amir Nas gully between the sleeping cattle and the dead wall, and then last of all, Bessessa, and the deep, even breathing of the old woman who slept outside the door of the bare little room that Durga Charan allotted to his sister's daughter. Trejago falls in love with Bessessa, and she believes that he will marry her, there is an entirely different podcast to be done upon sexual relations within the empire. 
but in this case, when rumours of the liaison of the relationship get out, Trajago returns to the window grating through which he's previously crawled to his young lover to find her holding her arms out to the moonlight. Both hands had been cut off at the wrist. As he sees this, the next thing he feels is a knife being thrust out from the grating, which cuts into his groin. The implication is that Trajago is rendered impotent by the wound. This is one of the darkest stories that Kipling ever wrote. And I speak as someone who, who read The White Seal as a child and was deeply traumatized. But in all of his work, there is a strong ambivalence about the accepted idea, the culturally accepted idea of the time that whites were more superior to Indians and a strong ambivalence about the narratives that are attached to empire that glorify it and a really keen appreciation of the gritty, grimy, sordid realities of empire and imperialism and colonization. And we see this being picked apart very, very precisely in this short story, Thrown Away. So here there's an unnamed subaltern who commits suicide because he feels he has disgraced himself with a woman and debt. Um, he hasn't learned the lesson, as the story says, that India is a place beyond all others where one must not take things too seriously, the midday sun always accepted. Too much work and too much energy will kill a man just as effectively as too much assorted vice or too much drink. There is a multi-layered irony going on here. Like so many of Kipling's stories, there is, a, there is a recognition of the cruelty of reality and of life. The narrator and the major who helped to bury the boy give out that he has died of cholera, but they, were, they think of sending home a lock of hair to his mother so that his mother can grieve for him. But there were reasons why we could not find a lock fit to send. The subtext is he's blown his head off. So they send a lock of the major's hair instead and drunk on whiskey and slightly hysterical, they write back to the boy's mother setting forth how the boy was the pattern of all virtues beloved by his regiment. It was no little time for little lies, you understand, and that he had died without pain. Kipling is pointing out the myths of empire that overlay the sordid and grimy and pretty dirty reality of it. What is necessary is for us to engage with him and to understand the context of his time and to understand the good and the bad of it. It was clear that Kipling loved India. It was in his bones. It was the land of his birth. His most successful evocation of it, I think, is Kim. And that was written long after he'd left India in 1901. Briefly praising the story, Kimball O'Hara, the son of an Irish colour sergeant and one infers a Eurasian nursemaid, befriends a Tibetan Lama and follows him on the religious pilgrimage to Benares and the river which will wash away sin. Contrasted with the Lama and his essentially serious perception of things are the British intelligence agents who want to train Kim as a spy in The Great Game. If you read Kim, it's a what we would now call a hybrid novel, a novel that straddles multiple cultures and it does so because of the lead character Kimball O'Hara but the most deeply felt and evocative sections are the sections that deal with India and Kim's travels through India the most realistic characters are all the are the Indians the the Hindus and the Muslims and the Sikhs 
um, the spies, the British, feel like they've wandered in. They feel like they're kind of dramatic, their characters on a dramatic stage that have wandered in. They're from adventure stories on a railway bookstorm. And I think that what people forget about Kipling, and they shouldn't, is that he was aware that the empire would end. And at the time, British people genuinely didn't think that it would. He was aware that it would end because he had a deep appreciation of history. And there are multiple wonderful poems about the Anglo-Saxons and the Romans and wonderful short stories and, and books like Pook of Pook's Hill, which look at history in the long view. And there is the famous recessional poem that he wrote. He wrote a recessional at the point when everybody else in Britain and the empire was organizing huge parades to celebrate Victoria's Diamond Jubilee and the absolute power that Britain bestrode the world with, he wrote recessional because he knew it, he could see it, he knew history, empires rise and empires fall. God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, an humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called our navies melt away, on dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations, spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. If drunk with sight of power we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles use are lesser breeds without the law. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. For heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard, all valiant dust that builds on dust and guarding calls not thee to guard. For frantic boast and foolish word, thy mercy on thy people, Lord. But the recognition that it's going to end, whether Kipling was aware of it or not, is that it will end. If you read Kim, there is a sense that everyone takes the Raj and the continuance of the Raj for granted. There are no Indian nationalists. But if you look at the way that India is evoked and the two-dimensional caricature way that the British in the great game are evoked, what you get is a very, very strong sense that India, in all of its cultural abundance, in all of its geographical variety, in its myriad colours and lights and smells and sounds, it comes alive in the book and it is quite incomparably larger and stronger and more resilient and more enduring than any temporary political system that has been imposed on it. It's going to end. There's a knowledge there that it's going to end. And between the publication of Kim and the end of the Raj, there would have been people alive in Kim's Lahore who lived to see its end. Lahore was no longer a city of Kipling's India. Like most of the Punjab, it became part of Pakistan. The Sikhs, who were the loyalist of Indian, of Indian subjects to the crown, about four million of them, found their homeland crudely divided down the middle in the territorial carve-up that was contrived by Cyril Radcliffe and Mountbatten in 1947. Exile, 
migration massacre were what awaited these people, and there were at least half a million dead. Kipling is a difficult writer, no doubt. He is a difficult writer. But if we can't look our history in the eye, then it doesn't say very much about us as people in the 21st century. He is a writer of genius. It is difficult to think of a comparable writer who had his range and his impact. It is not just the poetry, although the poetry is exceptional. It is not just the short stories, although the short stories are also exceptional. Plain Tales from the Hills and Soldiers 3 were revolutionary in their time. And for all they are crafted for dramatic impact, they give us a glimpse into the realities of British life in India far better than the official versions of the time. It is not just his work on the stage, it is not just his work in the field of children's books. The Jungle Book remains an outstanding piece of work. As do Just So Stories. And in Storky & Co, which is an addition to the boarding school canon that was invented by Tom Brown School Days and which has become a perennial of children's literature, there is a very, very deep recognition of the savagery of children, but also the realities of bringing children up within the imperial system and a very, very real sense of what do they know of England, they who only England know. The, one of the book's most powerful sections is when someone comes in to give a speech to the boys and starts waving a flag and starts talking about honour and duty and sacrifice. Now, in our own time, we have started to see politicians giving speeches in front of Union Jacks. Tropes about our flag, our country, our people, our values are being trotted out without any actual real deep investigation or exploration of what those things actually mean. They are ideas that are being mobilised to tell us not to question too deeply, to not put our hands up and say, hold on, this isn't right. If you go back to Storky & Co and you read about the jelly-bellied flag flapper, which sounds remarkably like somebody who used to be PM in this country, when he starts talking about honour and duty and sacrifice, they hiss. Because Kipling's point is that patriotism that is blind to a country's faults is not patriotism, it's nationalism. And there's a difference. You should love your country enough to be able to see its faults and then do your very, very best to correct them. You should not love your country to the point where you are blind to its faults. Mulvaney doesn't drink in Soldiers 3 because he's a jolly Irishman who likes a pint. He drinks because it's the only way to make his life in India bearable. I haven't quoted If, which is the one that everyone goes to with Kipling, and they go to it with Kipling nowadays because it fits the idea that you should be relentlessly striving all of the time. So you see Michael Caine reads If on YouTube and this kind of nonsense. If you actually read If in context, it's a very, very different message to the idea that what you have to do is be relentless and constantly striving and constantly cut. It's not about that. It's not about that at all. Read it again and have a deep think about it. And while you do, I'm going to leave you with one last poem of Kipling's, and I think it's an important one. It is, of course, Tommy. I talked in 
the episode about Dickens, about how little Britain has changed really in 170 years. And I think this sums it up. Because here's the thing, and when I say here's the thing nowadays, my children know that I'm about to say something about how you put gold leaf on a surface or something about you might want to consider these options about the things that we're about to do. And they're still just about young enough to go, okay, dad will humor you. I'm sure that it's shortly about to become the, yeah, get out of here, old man. You're not hip to the rhythm, daddy-o. In this country, we treat our soldiers, our men and women, our servicemen and women, abysmally. On GCSE results day and A-level results day in the poorer areas of the country, the army recruiters go around the schools and they sign up people who don't have any other options or pathways in life. And then we send them out to wherever we're invading or conquering or subduing or intervening in to fight. And we hear people like Tony Blair talking about boots on the ground back at the time of, of the Iraq war. A politician talks about boots on the ground. You need to step back from that politician because that politician has no apprehension of the realities of what boots on the ground actually means. And then when we take these 16 and 17 year olds and we brutalize them in order to train them and we train them to kill and then we send them to a foreign land and then they get their legs blown off by an IED or they, got, they get blown up in an attack, or they get shot, or they get permanently injured rather than killed, and they're sent back home with no arms and no legs. We throw them back out on the streets, and we do literally fuck all for them. There are charities like Blesma which do, but as a society, as a people, as a government, we do not. And that situation has not changed, and nor has the British attitude to it changed and it's exemplified in the poem Tommy. I went into a public house to get a pint of beer. The publican, he up and says, we serve no red coats here. The girls behind the bar, they laughed and giggled, fit to die. I out into the street again, and again to myself says I, oh, it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy go away. But it's thank you, Mr. Atkins, when the band begins to play. The band begins to play, my boys, the band begins to play. Oh, it's thank you, Mr. Atkins, when the band begins to play. I went into a theater, as sober as could be. They gave a drunk civilian room, but hadn't none for me. They sent me to the gallery, around the music halls. But when it comes to fighting, Lord, they shoved me in the stalls. For it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy wait outside. But it's special train for Atkins when the trooper's on the tide. The troop ship's on the tide, my boys, the troop ship's on the tide. Oh, it's special train for Atkins when the trooper's on the tide. Yes, making mocker uniforms that guard you while you sleep is cheaper than them uniforms and their starvation cheap. And hustling drunken soldiers when they're going large a bit is five times better business than parading in full kit. Then it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy how's your soul? But it's thin red line of heroes when the drums begin to roll. The drums begin to roll, my boys, the drums begin to roll. Oh, thin red line of heroes when the drums begin to roll. Red heroes, no, we aren't no blackguards too, but single men in barracks, most remarkable like you. And if sometimes our conduct isn't all your fancy paints, 
why single men in barracks don't grow into plaster saints. There's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy fall behind. But it's pleased to walk in front, sir, when there's trouble in the wind. There's trouble in the wind, my boys, there's trouble in the wind. Oh, it's pleased to walk in front, sir, when there's trouble in the wind. You talk of better food for us and schools and fires and all. We'll wait for extra rations if you treat us rational. But don't mess about the cook slops, but prove it to our face. The widow's uniform is not the soldier man's disgrace, for it's Tommy this and Tommy that and chuck him out the brute, but it's saviour of his country when the guns begin to shoot, and it's Tommy this and Tommy that and anything you please. Tommy ain't a bloody fool, you can bet that Tommy sees. Now, I enjoy talking about this stuff, and I urge you to engage with Kipling. Some of it you will find unbearably masculine and hearty, some of it will reek of moustaches and pipe smoke. Some of it might make you chuckle. Some of it will make you think. Some of it is deeply objectionable. But you can't bury it. You have to engage with it. Can't have collective amnesia about 350 years of our history. And Kipling is a writer of genius. I think he's second only to Shakespeare. And I'm only saying he's second only to Shakespeare because everybody else seems to hold Shakespeare in such high regard. Whereas I know that it was Edward de Vere who actually wrote everything. There is a whole other podcast to be done about how industries sustain particular authors, whether it's Shakespeare or the guy who writes Jack Reacher. But I urge you to engage with Kipling. He's a damn good read and he's thought-provoking. And that's not a bad thing. Because here's the thing. I do these little podcasts while I'm waiting for Lewin to finish his PGCE. And I talk about stuff that I used to know about because it's good for me to try and exercise my brain and see if my brain still works, which it often tends not to. But in doing so, it's pretty clear that a lot of the fundamental issues in this country that we face today in the third decade of the 21st centuries are issues that we faced 100 years ago, 120 years ago, 170 years ago, and we haven't really ever adequately addressed them. I do not think that literature changes the world in as much as I do not think that music changes the world. Literature might change the way that you think, so you might be able to change your world. And music might change the way that you feel, which also might make you able to change your world. But if we can draw those connections and those parallels and we can see that things haven't changed, and we have the choice in the third decade of the 21st century about what sort of society we would like to be, then going back and engaging with these texts and these authors and these ideas might make us go, oh look, they're pulling the same move again. We reject that, we want something different. Our forebears, our ancestors did, and that's how we ended up with the post-war settlement. It was not perfect, but it took 150 years of activism and social movement for it to arrive. And it has been slowly chipped away in my lifetime and in your lifetime too, and unless we fight for it, and unless we say, no, we are not going to have the divide and conquer stuff done to us anymore. This is what we want, and this is what we demand from our leaders. Then we will get the same as we've always got. In the meantime, try Kipling. He bakes exceedingly good poems. <laughs>